come to him, to that living stone rejected by men, but in God's sight chosen and precious. And like living stones, be yourselves built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and he who believes in him will not be put to shame. To you, therefore, who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, the very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner and a stone that will make men stumble, a rock that will make them fall. For they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were no people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Paul's theology of marriage is based on the Word of God. The Word of God who is Jesus Christ and the Word of God which is the inspired Old Testament. And since God is not a God of confusion, His Word is coherent. There is unity between these words. So when Paul wants to understand marriage, he looks to the Word of God, to Jesus and to the Scriptures. And what he sees when he brings Scripture and Christ together is that marriage is a profound mystery and that there are intensely practical implications of this mystery. And so what I want to do with you this morning is, in the first half of the message, unfold as best I can the mystery of marriage and in the second half develop two of those practical implications that are unfolded there in Ephesians 5. So if you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5 and perhaps stick another finger in Genesis chapter 2, we'll look at the Word of God for us this morning. First, verse 31 in Ephesians 5. It's a quotation from Genesis 2, verse 24. And it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul adds in the next verse, verse 32, This is a great mystery. Marriage is a great mystery. And... I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church, or I take it to mean Christ and the church. Paul knew something about the relationship between Christ and the church that caused him to see in Genesis 2.24 a mystery. Let's go back to Genesis 2 and see if we can determine from its context and its relationship to the other word of God in Christ what the mystery is. 
According to Genesis 2, God made Adam first before he made the woman and put him in the garden. And then in verse 18, it says that the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, I don't think that is an indictment of Adam's fellowship with God. Nor do I think it is a hint that the garden was too hard for one person to handle. It was paradise. I think the point of verse 18 is that God made man to be a sharer. God created us not to be cul-de-sacs of grace, but conduits of grace. No man is complete unless he is conducting grace like electricity to another person. And I don't want the single people in our midst to think that that's only possible to spouses. It's not. But it is very special in the way it's done to a spouse. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Yet it can't be an animal. Animals will not do. And therefore, in Genesis 2, 19 to 20, God paraded the animals before Adam to show him that they were inadequate as helpers fit for him. Oh, animals help, to be sure. Don't get the text wrong. They have always been helped, not only as workers, but as pets. But the text means only a person can be a sharer of grace. As Peter said, a sharer of the grace of life. Only a person can receive and appreciate and enjoy grace. What we need is not an animal, but a person. There's an infinite qualitative difference between sharing the northern lights with your beloved and sharing them with your dog. Therefore, according to verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took a rib, one of his ribs, and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Having shown that animals will not do, he now makes another human from man's own flesh, from man's own bone, like himself, and yet, ah, so unlike himself. He did not create another man. He created woman, and Adam recognized in her a perfect counterpart. And so he said, this at last is bone of my bones. And flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And that same word play is in the Hebrew. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. By creating a person like Adam and yet very unlike Adam, God provided the possibility of a very unique kind of oneness and harmony. There's a different kind of unity that's enjoyed when you put different things perfectly designed for each other together than when you put 
two identical things together. When we all sing the same line in the song, it makes for unison and it can be very powerful. But when everybody divides and sings the part soprano, alto, tenor and bass, something new happens and we call it harmony. And everybody who has an ear to hear knows that harmony touches the human being deeper than unison. Therefore, God made woman, not another man. He created heterosexuality, not homosexuality. God's first institution was marriage, not the fraternity. Now, notice the connection between verses 23 and 24. In verse 23, the focus is on two things. The fact that woman is part of man's flesh and bone and the response to that fact in the joy of the man when the woman is brought to him. At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And from those two things, the writer draws an inference about marriage as it has meaning right on through history. In verse 24, therefore... A man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. In other words, in the beginning, God took woman out of man and then presented her back to man to experience in living fellowship the oneness of flesh, which in another sense had existed before she ever was created. Then verse 24 draws a lesson out for the meaning of marriage. Marriage means leaving father and mother because God has given you another. Cleaving to that one and to no other. And experiencing oneness of flesh. Now, that's the message Paul heard when he listened to the word of God, which is the Old Testament scripture. But he knows another word from God, namely Jesus Christ, and he knows him deeply and intimately. He had learned from Jesus that the church, that is, the people who belong to him, to Christ, are his body. When we become Christians, we are united to each other and to the Lord in one body, the scriptures teach. That body means that the life of Christ is manifested through the church and the spirit of Christ indwells the church. We are the outward form of the life of Christ in the world today. And when Paul sees that, he sees a parallel to Genesis 2.24. He sees that husband and wife become one flesh and he sees that Christ and church become one body. And therefore, he is bold enough to begin to make connections and talk like this. In 2 Corinthians 11.2, he says to the church, I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to Christ. To present you as a pure bride to her one husband. Christ is pictured as the husband. The church is pictured as the bride. 
Conversion through the preaching of Paul's gospel is the betrothal and the presentation is probably the second coming. And that same presentation is referred to in Genesis 5:27, where Christ prepares a bride to present to himself in glory. So it looks as though Paul uses the relationship of human marriage learned from Genesis 2 to describe and explain the relationship between Christ and the church. But that's not right. That's upside down. And this brings us back to the mystery of verse 32 in Ephesians 5. After quoting Genesis 2.24 about the man and the woman becoming one flesh, Paul says, this is a great mystery. Now I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Paul saw in Genesis 2.24 a mystery. Marriage is a mystery. What is it? And now I think we can say it's this. God did not create the union of marriage in order to be a pattern which he would then cause the marriage of his son and the church to conform to. On the contrary, God created marriage to image forth to parabolize a reality in heaven which he had planned from all eternity, namely the marriage of his son to his people. And the mystery of Genesis 2.24 is that there's more here than meets the eye in marriage. Marriage is vastly more than most people make of it. God does not create anything willy-nilly. He has purpose and plan in everything he does. When he came to design the first bonding of humans, he didn't roll dice. He didn't draw straws. He looked at his son. He looked at the plan to marry that son to a great redeemed people. And he designed marriage as a parable in the world of a heavenly reality. And that's why marriage is a mystery. It is so much more than two people joining their lives together. What God has joined together in marriage is to be a reflection of the union between the Son of God and the bride, the church. And those of us who are married ought to spend time frequently pondering again and again how mysterious and wonderful it is that we are granted the privilege in our marriages to image forth divine realities that are vastly greater than we are. We trivialize marriage when we don't see its mystery. Now, what are the practical implications of this mystery. I'll mention the two that seem to me to dominate Ephesians chapter 5. One is this. Husbands and wives should consciously copy the relationship God intended for Christ and his church. Husbands and wives should consciously imitate or copy 
the relationship that God intended for Christ and his church. And the second implication is this. Every spouse should pursue his or her own joy in the joy of the other. Now, we'll take those implications one at a time. First, what's the pattern that God intended for husbands and wives when he ordained marriage as a mysterious parable of the relationship between the Son of God and the church? Two things, one to the wife and one to the husband. To the wife, in verses 22 to 24, Paul says, wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. As the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. According to the divine pattern intended by God, Wives are to take their unique cue from God's purpose for the church in its relationship to Christ. The church submits to Christ as her head, according to verse 23. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Headship implies two things in the epistle to the Ephesians. One is, it implies supply and salvation and the other is it implies authority and leadership in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 head is used to illustrate its meaning as supply and in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 20 to 23 head is used to illustrate its meaning as authority Let's look at those one at a time. Chapter 4, verse 15. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied when each part is working properly, makes bodily growth and upbuilds itself in love. The head is the goal towards which the body is growing, And it is the supply from which the body is enabled to grow. Then look at Ephesians 1, 20 to 23. These are the only other two places in the book where the word head is used. God raised him, Christ, from the dead and made him sit at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above every rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When God raised Christ from the dead, he made him head in the sense of giving him power and authority over all rule and authority and power in dominion that exists in the world. Therefore, from the context of Ephesians, the headship of the husband implies that as far as possible, 
he should accept greater responsibility for supplying the needs of his wife, including material needs, as well as protection and care. And he should accept greater responsibility of authority and leadership in the family. Therefore, when you get to verse 24, the meaning of submission is more clear. As the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject in everything to their husbands. The basic meaning of submission then would be that Christ or that wives recognize and honor the greater responsibility of their husbands to supply your protection and sustenance. And it means being disposed to yield to his authority, and it means being inclined to follow his leadership. Now, the reason I say that the meaning of subjection or submission is a disposition to yield or a inclination to follow is because in verse 22, the phrase as to the Lord limits the scope of subjection. No wife should place her husband where Christ belongs. The authority of Christ cannot be replaced by the authority of a man. She cannot yield or follow her husband into sin, no matter what he says. But even where a Christian wife stands with Christ against the sinful will of her husband, she can do it submissively. She can show by her attitude and behavior that she does not like resisting his will, that she longs for him to forsake sin and lead in righteousness so that her disposition to honor him as head can again produce harmony. Subjection and submission is a tone in a marriage more than any particular act. And so in this mysterious parable of marriage, the wife is to take her cue, her special and unique cue from God's purpose for the church in its relation to Christ. Now, the, the text says to husbands... Take your special cue from Christ in his relationship to the church. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. If the husband is the head of the wife, as verse 23 says that he is, let it be very plain to husbands that this means primarily leading out in love which is willing to die for the wife. Jesus said in Luke twenty-two twenty-six, let the leader 
become as one who serves. The husband who plops himself down in front of the TV and orders his wife about like a slave has forsaken Jesus Christ for Archie Bunker. Christ bound himself with a towel and got down on his hands and knees and washed his apostles' feet. And if you want to be a Christian husband, you've got to copy Jesus, not Jabba the Hutt. It is true that in verse 21, this whole section is put under the sign of mutual submission. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. But it is utterly unwarranted to say on the basis of that verse that the way Christ submits himself to the church is the same as the way the church submits herself to Christ. The church submits herself to Christ by a disposition to follow his leadership. Christ submits himself to the church by a disposition to use his leadership as a servant for her good. They are not the same. It is almost blasphemy to say they're the same. When Christ said, let the leader Become as one who serves. He did not mean let the leader cease to be leader. When you look at him on his hands and knees, washing the disciples' feet, do you have any doubt who the leader is? It's a tragedy that people are trying to overturn this text and destroy the pattern that God has laid down for marriage. Therefore, husbands, God's will for you is that you take responsibility under him to provide moral vision and spiritual leadership as the humble servant of your wife and family. So that's the first implication of this mystery of marriage. Wives and husbands should take their special, unique cues, the one from the church and God's purpose for her, and the one for Christ and God's purpose for him. Wherever you find a marriage like that, you find two extraordinarily happy people because they are fulfilling the word of God in Scripture and in Jesus Christ. One last practical implication, and it's this. A husband and a wife should pursue their own joy, like good Christian hedonists, in the joy of their partner. There is scarcely a more hedonistic text in the Bible then Ephesians 5:25 to 30. This text makes very plain and clear that the misery in marriages which we see all around us is not caused because 
husbands and wives are pursuing their own pleasure. It is caused because husbands and wives are pursuing their own private pleasure at the expense of their spouses. Instead of pursuing their pleasure in the pleasure of their spouses. But this is exactly what the text commands us to do. First, let's look at Christ's example in verses 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? Why did he do that? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Why does he cleanse her? That he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Christ died for the church in order that he might present to himself a beautiful bride. He was his own matchmaker. He endured the cross for the joy of the marriage that was set before him. But what's the ultimate joy of the church? Is it not to be presented to Christ as her sovereign? And if it is, then the admonition of Christ by his example is this. Seek your own joy in the joy of your beloved. That's what he did with the church. Verse 28 makes explicit the application to husbands, and I think it applies to wives as well. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Paul acknowledges one of the foundation stones of Christian hedonism. No man ever hates his own flesh. Even those who commit suicide do it to escape misery. By nature, we love ourselves. That is, we do what we think in the moment will make us happy. And Paul does not erect a dam to the river of hedonism. He builds a channel for it. And says very plainly to husbands and wives, look, haven't you learned from Genesis 2.24 that you have become one flesh? And therefore, husbands, don't you realize that when you live for your private pleasure at the expense of your wife, you are living against yourself and denying yourself the fullness of joy that you could be have that you could have if you sought your joy in her joy? If you devote yourself, on the contrary, husbands and wives, with all your heart to your holy joy in her or his holy joy, then your joy would be full. The sun would come out in your marriage. Now, I don't think that my personal testimony would add any weight to the word of God. This is a powerful text. And cannot be easily overthrown. But I want to give my own personal testimony anyway. 
that my joy may be full. I discovered Christian hedonism in 1968. And you know what else happened in 1968? I got married. For 15 years, Noel and I, in obedience to Jesus Christ, have pursued as passionately as we possibly could our own pleasure in each other's pleasure. All too imperfectly, all too half-heartedly at times, we have stalked our joy like a hunter in each other's joy. And I testify that there is where the prize is found. And it is glorious beyond words. And we believe and want so much at Couples in Cadence to try to help others believe that when you make marriage a matrix of Christian hedonism, and when each of you fulfills according to the word of God his and her own unique and specially God-appointed role, the mystery of marriage as a parable of Christ and the church unfolds like a flower for your enjoyment and for the world to see and glorify Christ. Amen. Shall we stand for prayer? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, I pray for people here who are married and who may someday be married, that they will not rebel against the plain teaching of this passage but will humble themselves and submit themselves first to you and then to each other in the appointed ways that are set forth in the parable of marriage and in Jesus Christ and his relation to the church. And grant, O oh God, that all of us, single and married, discover the extraordinarily unique peace that comes from obeying you, the peace of Christ, which we love, which we ascribe to you, and which we sing.